welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, author Melanie Cheng talks to Kate Grenville about Kate's new book, A Room Made of Leaves, a highly imaginative retelling of the life of Elizabeth MacArthur. A quick reminder, as this event was recorded live over the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. Now, here's your host, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Tonight, it is my great pleasure to introduce you to a great friend of readings, someone who's been around the reading shops for years now, who is an author and a doctor who works and lives and writes in Melbourne, the great and gorgeous Melanie Cheng. Thank you so much for joining us. You're going to be in discussion with Kate Grenville. What an extraordinary night we have got. Over to you, my friend. Thank you so much, Christine. Um, Good evening, everyone, and welcome. As um, Christine mentioned, my name is Melanie Cheng. I'm the author of two books, Australia Day and Room for a Stranger. And tonight I have the great privilege of interviewing Kate Grenville about her wonderful new novel, A Room Made of Leaves. I've been a fan of Kate's work ever since my mother thrust the secret river into my hands more than a decade ago. And I'm sure if you're tuning in tonight, you are fans too. But just in case you may have missed one of Kate's many achievements, let me introduce you to her again. Kate Grenville is one of Australia's most celebrated writers. Her international bestseller, The Secret River, was awarded local and overseas prizes and has been adapted for both the stage and as an acclaimed television miniseries. Her other novels include Sarah Thornhill, The Lieutenant, Dark Places, and the Orange Prize winner, The Idea of Perfection. Her most recent books are two works of nonfiction, One Life, My Mother's Story, and The Case Against Fragrance. She's also written three books about the writing process. In 2017, Kate was awarded the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. Kate, welcome and congratulations on a really exquisite novel. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's really lovely to be here with you and all the rest of you who I can't see, but I have faith that you're all there. 150, I believe. (laughs) Um, Now, I suspect many of these 150 attendees tonight have read A Room Made of Leaves, but for those readers who still have this treat in store, I was hoping that maybe you could introduce us to the premise of your first fictional work in almost 10 years. Okay, look, it's based on the idea that I've written a fictional memoir of a real historical person. So the real person is Elizabeth MacArthur, who was the wife of um, the sheep man, is usually how I introduce him, John MacArthur, who many people know about, but less than used to be, which is, in my view, not a bad thing. Uh, John and Elizabeth came to Australia in 1790, so very, very early on. And John, who was a, well, he was a ruthless bully and opportunist, to put it bluntly, uh, proceeded to squeeze every drop of advantage out of the place by any means he could. He was then several times sent back to England, uh, leaving his wife in charge of what was then a vast sheep empire. And that's why Elizabeth MacArthur is known, if she is, for being this remarkable woman who kind of stepped up to the plate and took over the reins of this giant business while her husband was away. And I was interested in what lay behind the rather pious myth that I was taught at school about Elizabeth MacArthur, the kind of 
perfect wife, the perfect helpmate. I thought there's probably more to her than that. And as soon as I went and looked, I discovered that, yes, there was a lot more to her than that. Mm. So I know Elizabeth is the main protagonist of the book, but I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about John MacArthur, um, because as you've alluded to, he really is quite a horrid man. Um, In fact, there were moments during my reading of the book when I found myself comparing him to a certain current tangerine-skinned world leader. Um, But what I really appreciated about your portrayal of him was that you didn't make him a monster. Um, You did show us that much of his awfulness stems from kind of a deep insecurity and probably seeded during his childhood. And I heard you say during another interview that there's nothing very interesting about baddies. Um, And it made me wonder if you think it's the role, maybe even the responsibility of a writer to ensure that even those most evil characters are kind of believable and fully formed, you know, individuals. Yeah, I I think so. Personally, I, I don't find any kind of art that has goodies and baddies in the slightest bit interesting Mm. Um, because for me judging people or labeling them is entirely uninteresting understanding them Mm. is what i'm interested in and in particular finding particularly with people that you actually feel as if you would have nothing in common with feeling that thread of empathy um, which connects all of us as human beings no matter how different we are Um, well i don't know about the person you alluded to without (laughs) Uh, that is a that is a stretch, but you could it could probably be done. So yeah, John MacArthur. Look, first of all, he almost certainly had a mental illness. He these days he would probably be diagnosed as having a bipolar disorder. Would mm-hmm. be not just my guess, but the guess of people better informed than I am about these things. Um, plus, he had a damaging childhood and early life. You know, um, what people do with that damage, of course, is kind of up to them. Mm. But I did try in the book to say, look, um, it would have been very easy to just draw him as a, you know, the sort of um, one-dimensional cardboard horrible husband. Um, But he's more interesting than that, as Elizabeth is more interesting than the goody gumboil that the Mm. myth is portrayed. Yeah, and in fact, that's that's what I wanted to get to next because obviously she's a more sympathetic character than John, but... um, you know, in this A Room Made of Leaves, you've, you've written a fictionalised memoir which really reads as intimately as, as her personal diaries. It's first person, it's intense. And occasionally, you know, even in those parts about the journey to Australia, it's, it's quite claustrophobic at times. Um, and, you know, I wonder what, why, what made you want to inhabit, you know, the body, mind and world of Elizabeth MacArthur? Because I imagine as a writer, it would have been quite an intense kind of experience to, to write from that perspective. It certainly was. I mean, the book took me about 20 years to write because I first came across Elizabeth MacArthur, apart from learning about her at school, um, when I was researching for The Secret River. And I okay. came across just a little mention of her in a, a book by Tim Flannery, in fact, Um, And two things about that really interested me. First of all, um, the main way she's come down to us is through her letters. And her letters are basically extremely boring. They're very (laughs) prim and proper. Yeah. Uh, It's like she's self-censoring herself, as women in those days had to, because letters were public things. They were not where you poured your heart out out to your best friend. 
they were read aloud in the parlour to the assembled neighbours. So the letters are these very bland, um, sort of blameless. It's like she is the perfect wife in the letters. But when I read a little bit about her actual life, I thought, okay, her life was tumultuous and incredibly difficult, partly because of her husband and because of her situation. She was the wife, she was the, the daughter of a, of a farmer in England. So she wasn't a lady, but she did get a good education. And she was approximately a contemporary of Jane Austen. So, you know, and she was actually brought up mostly in a, um, a clergyman's house, as Jane Austen was. So yeah. what you have to imagine is a Jane Austen heroine plunged into the squalor and violence and barbarity of Sydney in 1790. Mm. So what I, when I read the Tim Flannery book, I thought there's something really interesting here. On the one hand, these very bland letters. On the other hand, a life which was anything but bland. There is a gap there. It's like the letters must be a mask, is what I thought. Mm. The letters are a mask. Who was the real person? Because she mm. wasn't really, I know she couldn't have been what the letters uh, portray her as being. Mm. And, um, you know, we talked about how, John, you didn't demonise him and in the same way you don't like goodies, you didn't canonise Elizabeth either in this memoir, which I really appreciated. And there's one scene in particular that I really loved and it was when Elizabeth's enjoying some Ceylon tea procured by, you know, her well-connected husband and she says, I will not try in this account to make myself look better than I was if I had to suffer the fact of being married to this man, I was craven enough to enjoy the fruits of his villainy. And, you know, I, I just love that because I think it speaks to the way that all of us create these narratives to explain and justify the things that we do. And in particular, our complicity in evil acts. Um, and, you know, w with only having those kind of bland letters to go with, how did you kind of dig into the depths and find this, you know, really complex, nuanced character? Was there any hints of that? Uh, I just wonder as a writer how you, how you got to her. There were just one or two moments in those dull letters when the mask slipped. Mm. And one of them, in fact, I think was in that same... Um, uh, Tim Flannery book. Um, she's describing how she got some lessons in astronomy from William Dawes, who, of course, I have written about in The Lieutenant. Um, he was the astronomer with the First Fleet. So she wanted some lessons in easy astronomy. And she writes back to a friend in England, um, I got the lessons in astronomy, but I mistook my abilities and I blush at my error. Now, when I read those five words, I blush at my error, I thought, aha, this is the mask slipping just for a moment. Mm. When do we blush? We blush when we're emotionally and perhaps erotically involved. Our feelings are high. Our blood runs high. It shows in our face. For a moment, we can't disguise the fact that I, my reading of this, and I'm actually not the only person to have read this into those words, there was a frisson of attraction. There was a definite erotic charge there. So mm. that made me... You know, I lost faith in this book many times over the 20 years of writing it for all kinds of reasons. They were, the, they were the five words I would come back to each time and think, yes, there is a story here. I'm having difficulty finding it, but I will keep going. And there were times when I felt as if Elizabeth MacArthur was kind of channeling herself through me. I know that sounds ridiculous, 
But when I came to the idea of writing the book as a pretend memoir, so the, 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 the joke of the book is that I somehow miraculously came across uh, a box of old papers that had been hidden in the top of an old house. Um, and they turned out to be the secret uh, outpourings of Elizabeth MacArthur's real thoughts. They were her secret memoirs that she'd written mm. and hidden away for posterity. Now, of course, unfortunately, no such documents have ever, in fact, come to life or light. Um, but that gave me a mechanism to get into her voice while at the same time uh, trying to do what I was really interested in with the book. Because although I am deeply interested and admiring of Elizabeth MacArthur, I actually had a bigger fish to fry, which was to investigate the whole idea of stories and what stories people leave behind, how much they should be believed, uh, and in general to ask the question, um, who's writing this story? Who is their audience? What is their agenda? Why are they writing it? And that brings the story from the 18th century into the present. And, you know, I'm always described as a writer of historical fiction. I am interested in history, but actually it's the present that I'm most interested in. And by looking at the past, I think you can kind of get a, another window, another kind of torchlight onto the present. Mm. So in setting the book up as a series of kind of nested, you know, it begins with little bits of her real letters embedded in the book, um, outside that, there's a little layer of fiction, then there's another layer of fact, another layer of fiction, another layer of fact. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, stories shouldn't be trusted, no matter how mm. interesting they are. For most of the 20 years that I was writing the book, my working title was Do Not Believe Too Quickly. And that mm. was actually my theme. Yeah. And I think it's so obviously, as you mentioned, relevant when we're coming, you know, oh. the Western worlds are facing their brutal colonial past. It's almost a reckoning that we're having it, having now. And, and I felt that I felt it was a contemporary book, even though it is a historical, you know, narrative. So I I'm, really enjoyed that. I'm very glad um, that you say that because I am not all that interested in the late 18th century. And I think there are <laughs> urgent things to be said about the present and I think this notion of, you know, we live in a world where we are saturated with information and misinformation, and it's like our, our longing for the information and stories um, has not, our ability to judge them for their truth has not kept up with our hunger for them. And I mm. think what we need to develop is that, is that scepticism. Mm. Um, you know, that woman that we've all seen, Karen from Bunnings, <laughs> you know, she's been online and this little virus of these crazy ideas has entered her head and she is now acting on it. That's the trouble and causing danger. Mm. So it seems like this is, an, this is almost a spookily um, sort of appropriate theme. To have yeah, no, about, uh, definitely. In this, at this particular time. Yeah, and I mean, um, the voice of Elizabeth feels also contemporary like I felt like I could relate to her very easily whereas in some Austen novels I struggle say with Fanny Price to really find much to you know relate to um, 
and she's a very sensual person as well. And I wanted to come back a bit to, to William Dawes, the character, because as you mentioned, this is a real man from that era, a scientist, astronomer, and a character who has recurred in a few of your novels. And I just, I'm just intrigued. Why do you keep returning to William Dawes and is Elizabeth's enchantment in part Kate Grenville's enchantment? <laughs> well, <laughs> possibly. I mean, who knows what Dawes was? He may have been a very dull... Um, <laughs> I think what attracted me, when I wrote The Lieutenant, what I was attracted to was the idea of a man who had been brought up saturated in British colonial philosophy, basically, and was part of the colonial um, project, that nevertheless, some spark burned in him to know that that was not the right way to go. I mean, not only did William Dawes, he was the first person to properly attempt um, to, under, to learn the Gadigal language, not just as a set of words so that he could, you know, get what he wanted, but to understand the grammar and the kind of soul of the language. And he did this through a, what was obviously a very respectful and playful and lovely relationship uh, with several Indigenous people, but particularly a young woman called Pachigarang. Now, that is, that is an extraordinary... Again, you know, novelists love things that don't quite make sense. Mm. So this starchy soldier type... Um, who was also kind of a bit nerdy, clearly, when you read his writings, uh, he nevertheless had this extraordinary imaginative thing. Now, when I was writing the book about him, The Lieutenant, Elizabeth MacArthur was already in that a minor character. Uh, she, because I, I had already read about her blushing at her error. Mm. Uh, so I, she had a little, she had a little cameo part in the lieutenant, which for a reason that I now can't quite remember, I removed at about draft 20. Um, and so she's no longer there. But the notion that these two people, because she did actually have lessons in astronomy and she did in fact, as is in the book, uh, through doors, she would have met and related to uh, the, the Sydney people who visited him and taught him their language. Um, that's already a really interesting kind of counter story to the, to the usual one. Here are two people who are part of the colonial project, but they are also prepared to step outside it. Mm. That again, at this, at this moment in history, as you say, where we're trying to kind of tear apart, break open all those old colonial mindsets, um, these are two people who were doing it back then. Um, mm. And we can, we can, I think, learn something from them, or at least our own sense of what we're doing can be expanded by watching what they did. Yeah. And building on that, in your acknowledgements, you, you write that as a non-Indigenous writer, I'm conscious of how easy it is in telling stories of the past to be blind to our own cultural blindness. Um, and you thank various people, including Anita Heiss and Bruce Pascoe, for their help in advising you on some of the Indigenous aspects of the story. And as a fellow writer, I'm really interested to hear what that process of consultation was like. Um, um, the process of consultation was not so much... The, the people you've mentioned were very helpful in putting me in touch with okay. the people of the Baramatical and Gadigal peoples who mm -hmm. are 
it was very important for me to consult with them because I was telling a story that involved them. Um, and for various reasons, I had found it difficult to just, you know, work out almost physically how, how to do that. So they were very helpful. Um, so they didn't actually advise me on any of those um, matters. What I did was to show the manuscript to the Metropolitan Land Council in Sydney, representing the Gadigal people, and the Darug um, Aboriginal Corporation, representing the Baramatigal people, who are the two groups I've mentioned specifically in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a courtesy. It's not a... It's not a... Uh, it's a courtesy, it's a mark of respect. I'm writing about people that they're descended from. So it was very important mm. to me. But I would also say that um, my having done that and thanked them uh, is not to say that they, you know, have given the stamp of approval or anything like that. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't want to make that claim. Yeah, sure. Um... There's a scene late in the book, which, again, I really loved and which I thought was a perfect distillation of this colonial impulse to kind of possess things of mystery and beauty. And um, it's the scene where Elizabeth comes across a stick that's left behind by one of the Aboriginal women in Parramatta. And you write as her, there was an urge to keep it to walk away feeling it balanced in my hand, to take it home, show it to others, display it on a mantelpiece, steal some of its glory for myself. In fact, Elizabeth doesn't take the stick. She doesn't act on that impulse, but she does feeling, just does describe feeling shame at, at, at wanting to do it. Um, and, you know, that, that capacity for self-reflection, I, I don't know, of course I wasn't there, but I imagine it was probably quite unique amongst the settlers. And um, I, I wonder, you, you clearly gave the fictional Elizabeth this, this kind of trait of this capacity to reflect. And was there any evidence of that in your research or letters, or is that something that comes from you that you've given to her? So I'm quite interested to know. It's interesting, you know, trying to, I've often been asked whether I'm imposing a 21st century sensibility on an 18th century person. And I think the problem is it goes back to this notion of what stories we leave behind, what the record says. The historical record is a very partial one and it's, it privileges, for, for a start, what was written down and it mostly privileges men's stories. So when we, when we build up a picture, you know, we say, would an 18th century person really have done this? Were they really that different from us? Is it just that they, for all sorts of reasons, were not, um, did not leave behind much record of that? Now, in fact, some historians have dug up the most astonishing things that go against, cut against our stereotypes about those early settlers, for example. There was, for example, I think I read this in a Henry Reynolds book, uh, a settler in South Australia who was so well aware that he was on, as Chris said in the beginning, stolen land, that every year he sent money to the British government with a little note saying, I know that I'm on Aboriginal land and this is what I consider an appropriate rent for this land. Please make sure it gets to the right people. Now, you can imagine Mm. it went. But the fact that he even had that impulse uh, means that we tend to, you know, there can sometimes be a monolithic stereotype about people of the past. In fact, I think they might have been as varied as we are. And when we mm. make assumptions about who they were, 
we're making it on the basis of very partial evidence. And so perhaps we should give them, uh, give them, well, we might, we might ask a question, in fact, can they be that different from us? And what might we have done in all our variety in that situation? Mm. And in some ways, I've been thinking about this because uh, it's easier for us in modern Australia almost to ignore the fact that we're living on stolen land. But for someone like Elizabeth, who, you know, um, was, you know, hearing about the battles that were not far away and it would be harder for them to actually ignore it or pretend that they, they weren't. So in some ways it makes sense that perhaps there was a heterogeneity of opinion and, um, you know, at that time. Exactly right. I mean, when you, when you read the documents, there, are, there is this thread of people saying, even, even one of the governors saying, you know, this land belongs to the Aboriginal people. They were ever the proprietors of the soil, one of the early governors said. Um, so there always was that. Um, and I think that's kind of, in our, in our current puzzles, I mean, those of us who are not Indigenous have to work out a way of how can we kind of justify being here? Now, you know, we, we can't go back. As you say, Elizabeth MacArthur could have gone back. She never, ever went back to England, even for a visit. And one of the things I wanted to show was how a person from a little village in Devon, as she was from, um, would come here and over a lifetime begin to understand this new place that she was in and begin to love it uh, mm. to such an extent that at the end she realises that this is where she wants, this is where, this is home, to where she mm. wants to die and to become the dust of this place, not the place where she was born. I mean, it's the dilemma of every group of settlers mm. um, in la on land that has been taken from other people, which is kind of the history of the human race, really. Um, mm. And now, at this moment in Australia, I think it's very important for us settler descendants to, uh, to think deeply about it. The, and the first thing, I think, I have no great answers about any of that, but I do think the first thing we need to do is to truthfully tell the stories about what happened back then. Um, and the other fabulous thing that's happening now, of course, is that Indigenous people are telling that story mm. from their point of view. How was it for them? So that's what's never happened before. And finally, it is happening. And that is, that is a, huge, a huge step forward. Mm. Um, I actually thought that, you know, in addition to that theme of do not believe too quickly, that one of the other major themes was actually this notion of home and belonging um, because, yes, um, you know, there's a, another line later on in the book where Elizabeth says, I belonged here now better than I belonged to any other sliver of the globe's mighty bulk. But then quite soon afterwards she says, that this place is not flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. So it's that it's that tension. And for me, that's the real punch in the guts moment of your book, um, because I can relate to that. And um, I was wondering, uh, reading your bio, you've lived in various places over, over time in Paris, London, the States. And um, I'm wondering, you know, what, what makes home for you and, um, are you also grappling with this kind of uneasy comfort of if, if you do call Australia home? Um, 
and is. I certainly call Australia home, um, but it, it's it's not a it's not a comfortable it's not a comfortable place in a way for me. I think I'm still look ever since uh, when I first started to write the Secret River, which was about the year two thousand, and I did I was part of the walk across Sydney Harbour Bridge for reconciliation. And that was the kind of, it wasn't the first time I had thought about these issues, but it was the first time it became real and personal for me that actually it was kind of my obligation not just to take for granted that this fabulous place was my home, that I was lucky enough to have been born in here, born in Australia, um, that I, it was not enough to take that for granted and go along being relaxed and comfortable about it, I actually had to allow myself to become extremely uncomfortable and unrelaxed. And of course, the research for The Secret River was among the most confronting things I think I've ever done, because the extent of settler brutality uh, had, was not something I'd ever learned at school. So that mm. all came as a great shock. My own particular ancestor, I never found out what he did uh, in relation to the Aboriginal people he'd displaced. I hope that he wasn't part of a massacre. Um, but I have to accept the fact that it is possible. He may have been. Mm. So my sense of being home here is always tinged with, as I've given to Elizabeth MacArthur at the end of the book, I love this place as I could never love any other. And yet at the same time, I know that I've stolen it. I'm, I'm on stolen land, as we perhaps, as, as, as we say. Mm. Um, and Elizabeth MacArthur at the end has exactly my puzzle. It is exactly our puzzle today. Yeah. She says, this is my room made of leaves, but actually I have to admit that I'm a thief. Mm. And that's a tough thing to look at. And mm. I don't quite know where we go from there, but I think the telling the truth about it is certainly the first thing without, any, without which nothing else can happen. Mm. And um, although, you know, the book is such a serious work of fiction that's dealing with these um, very important issues and complex issues, it, not just of colonisation, but also of feminism. Um, there is, as you alluded to again earlier about the joke, there's this lovely playfulness to it, which I think um, helps us to try and grapple with the kind of more serious themes as well. And that, that playfulness comes back to that invention of stories. Um, and in these little touches and your recurrent pleas for us to not believe too quickly, I had this sense that I as the reader and you as the author were kind of complicit in this game of truth and lies. And, I mean, you, you said you've you spent 20 years writing it, um, but I do wonder if, because I got the impression reading it that it was kind of fun uh, at times, like because of the joke and the playfulness. And I, I wondered, was it fun to write or was it gruelling or was it, you know, what was your experience kind of? It, of the it writing? was huge. It was huge fun to write because I knew that Elizabeth MacArthur, uh, if you cracked open the shell of the perfect wife, I knew that she had to be an interesting person. And that phrase, you know, I blush for my error. I mean, that's her not only admitting that she's blushing for her error, but she's prepared to write it down. In other words, she's a person who can look at herself and be quite self-conscious about her own reactions. It's quite a, it's a very 21st century kind of self-consciousness, you know, mm. doing that. It's, it's what we learn in psychoanalysis. So I knew 
that uh, the person, the woman I was going to discover was going to be a lot of fun to spend 20 years with, which <laughs> certainly was. Yeah. In the draft, I discovered some new fabulous thing about her, which I would never have kind of come up with before. Uh, it was as if she was showing herself to me in little glimpses. There'd be a little scene here, a little scene there, and I would think, ah, oh, that too, okay. And I'd rush yeah. to the desk and, you know, start writing again. So yeah. it was enormous fun. I think um, I seem to need to always have a, a serious thread through all my books, but I also very much uh, want to have fun writing them and uh, give pleasure to the reader. And mm. I, um, you know, sometimes people read my books without any sense of the slightly dark little thread that runs through it, and that's fine. I think that's, that's terrific. It mm. means that it's worked as a psychological study of an extraordinarily interesting person. And if that other thread is there at some unconscious level for them to maybe think about later, that's fine. It doesn't have to be, shouldn't be mm. at the forefront of, of their reading experience. Mm. And um, given that it was 20 years in the making and you spent so much time with her, um, and I believe you worked on other projects at the same time. I, as I well. did write uh, yeah. one, two, three, four, five other books. In, <laughs> so now what does it feel like to be done with it? Or are you done with it? And have, you know, Elizabeth MacArthur out in the world, do you feel relief or do you feel grief um at leaving her um or is she always with you i'm just interested yeah well. look, she is always with me um look the funny thing is sharing her with other people as you say and once you send a book out into the world you have to accept that every reader reads a slightly different book because they're mm. reading it through the matrix of their own experience of life and so on their own value system so they're all going to read a different book um, and that's a bit like sending a child out into the world. They have to, mm. you know, they are their own person. And you've, you've done what you could to, to, you know, give them what they needed to begin with. And after that, you have to let them go, mm. you know. Um, but uh, my relationship with her is unchanged by any of that. So uh, she's a friend that I will always have. I do feel that she's like a, like a real person that I have got to know and like immensely mm. and could explore her character further. I don't think I will in another book, but, mm. you know, she's, she's so full that she's not finished yet. This book isn't the finish of her. Mm. Yeah, I like the analogy of children because I'm trying to, my children are just small and I'm trying to imagine how I feel when they leave home and I think it would be a bit of relief and a bit of grief kind of all mixed <laughs> in together. Um, so you mentioned about how many projects, you're, you're very prolific, um, and I imagine you must have something on the go right now, and I, I'm sure everyone would love to know what Kate Grenville is working on at the moment. Well, look, it's a difficult question because I have, you know, this book, it has been difficult to let Elizabeth MacArthur go, and of course it's only, she's only been out in the world about a month, so mm. I am still... I still open the book and read her with a sense of um, discovery, really. So, um, uh, and of course, I'm starting to get responses from readers, which is which is fantastic. That's mm. another whole dimension of that. 
Um, look, I have several. This is this is by way of evading your question. Frankly. That's okay. Maybe it's. <laughs> I know everything in the literary world's embargoed, so <laughs> feel free to keep it close to your chest. There are there are projects, but I yeah. think I might I might you know you can you can um, you can kind of frighten a project away. Yes. I find that too. It ruins the magic of it when you start it talking does. about it. A raise of the eyebrow for me can put me off if, you know, when I'm describing my next project, that can completely kill it. Exactly. Um, well, um, yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting some chat messages from Christine. So I think we are almost out of, out of time, but I'd like to finish by saying that, um, whilst this may not feel like a book launch in the kind of traditional sense of the world word, I would like us to kind of wherever anybody, wherever we may be, kind of raise a glass. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has one quite close at hand. Um, and make a little toast to um, Kate's fabulous novel. It will delight you and it will keep you company during lockdown. But it will also make you think deeply about home and belonging and uh, hidden and brutal colonial past. And though Kate implores us to not believe too quickly, I would like you to please believe me when I declare that you will adore this book. Um, it gives me really great pleasure to officially launch A Room Made of Leaves at Readings Melbourne. And thank you, Kate, and congratulations on a really wonderful book. Thank you, Melanie. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. It really has. You Thanks. Too. It's a highlight for me. Thank you. Okay. Uh, to you, Dr. Melanie Cheng, I raise my glass. Thank you so much for asking such beautiful, <laughs> articulate questions. In my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined being so beautifully presented like you have. Kate, it's such a pleasure to meet you across the screens. I know that so many of our watchers here tonight feel exactly the same way. To you, Miss Grenville, thank you so, so much for the years and years of entertainment you have given me and you have given Australia and the wide world. You are a complete treasure. On behalf of readings, on behalf of text publishing, to you both, Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Kate. And thank you to Reading. Thank you, Reading. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.